This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is another podcast of World Wide Wave, the international LGBT news and current affairs show, every week on Australia's first LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. Surfing the globe, bringing you news, views, and current affairs for the LGBT community. This is the World Wide Wave. Good evening, I'm Woman Jika. It's World Wide Wave time, Joy's international news and current affairs show for and by the LGBTI community, taking around the globe one queer story at a time. I'm Matt, and we're live from the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in this magnificent Victorian Pride Centre. And tonight I'm joined in the studio by Stefan. Hello. And hello, Andrew. Good evening. It's been called an assault on religious minorities, women and LGBTIQ people, a worrying step back for democracy and human rights, and a crackdown on dissent. There are very few, if any, people speaking out in support of the Indonesia's new criminal code, yet it passed Parliament with the support of almost all political parties. It contains some direct threats to Indonesia's LGBT community and also some potentially hidden ones. To guide us through the extensive changes and what they mean, tonight we are joined by Tim Lindsay, the Director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and the Society at the University of Melbourne. Here's a taste of what's coming up tonight. But outside Aceh, homosexuality is not illegal. However, because gay and lesbian people cannot marry legally, the effect of these provisions is to make their relationships a criminal offence if a member of their family reports it. So opponents of this new criminal code say that these provisions really criminalise gay and lesbian people by stealth because they are the only Indonesian people who cannot actually marry. We are talking all things Indonesia tonight where... The situation for LGBT people is changing rapidly. Does that change your view of Indonesia? I mean, there's so many Australians that go across there, particularly to Bali, but, you know, to other parts. Mm. Has that changed your view? Are you more likely to go, less likely to go? Do you still love the people? Are you worried about it? On December 6, 2022, Indonesia's parliament passed a new criminal code with wide-ranging implications for women, LGBT people, religious minorities, journalists and anyone speaking against the government. Media have largely focused on the criminalisation of consensual sex outside of marriage and unmarried couples living together. Both carry the potential for jail terms. Tim Lindsay is an expert in Indonesian law. He's the director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and the Society at the University of Melbourne. We asked him to explain what the upcoming law states and what it means for LGBT people. There are two provisions in the new criminal code that have caused international controversy. One of them punishes extramarital sex with up to a year in prison and the other says that couples who live together without being legally married can also be jailed. And, of course, there have been widespread fears expressed that unmarried foreign couples visiting Bali in particular, which is, of course, a favourite tourist destination for Australians. Before COVID, about 1.2 million Australians went there every year. 
there are fears that that unmarried foreign couples, including Australians, visiting Bali and other parts of Indonesia might well be targeted. However, it's actually not as dangerous as it might seem. First of all, these two offences are what are called in Indonesia complaint offences. And that means they can't apply unless a close member of the family, and specifically they're listed in the law itself, a husband, a wife, a parent or a child, report the matter to the police. That makes it really pretty unlikely that the new provisions would be deployed against an unmarried foreign tourist couple because it would require their Australian family to report them to the authorities in Indonesia. I mean, I suppose it's not impossible, but it's extremely unlikely. However, it is possible that if a foreigner, an Australian visiting Bali, for example, is in a relationship that doesn't involve marriage or is living with an Indonesian partner, then if that Indonesian partner's family reports them, then the police could act. But if nobody reports them, then the police cannot act, even if the relationship is blatant and in front of them. They can't take a step unless that complaint is lodged. Now, there's a lot of concern in Indonesia about the impact of these provisions on Indonesians. There has been a lot of concern expressed about these provisions, particularly by young people. There's a concern that they allow families to use police and courts to enforce their views about sexuality and choice of partner. And when it comes to sexuality, it's also feared that this new law will particularly be used to target gay and lesbian people because gay and lesbian people cannot legally marry under Indonesian law. Homosexuality is not illegal in Indonesia, except in one part of Indonesia, which is the eastern province of Aceh. That's the only place in Indonesia where Sharia law can legally be applied in its own right. And in that province, laws have been passed that make homosexuality a criminal offence. But outside Aceh, homosexuality is not illegal. However, obviously, because gay and lesbian people cannot marry legally, the effect of these provisions is to make their relationships a criminal offence if a member of their family reports it. So opponents of this new criminal code say that these provisions really criminalise gay and lesbian people by stealth because they are the only Indonesian people who cannot actually marry. From a legal viewpoint, doesn't that present a problem in that, you know, the law says homosexuality is not illegal, but this is really saying it is? Yeah, that's right. It, well, it certainly, what it does do, it doesn't quite say that, but it certainly allows members of gay and lesbian people's families who object to their sexuality or their relationships to turn their identity into a criminal offence by reporting them to the police. There is an explanatory memorandum that comes with the criminal code and it includes a list of relationships that specifically breached the ban on extramarital sex. And all of the ones listed there are heterosexual. But that explanatory memorandum is only a guide and authorities can quite easily expand the definition of an illegal sexual relationship to encompass gay and lesbian people simply because they can't marry. Gay and lesbian people are also likely to be targeted under another provision that prohibits now indecent acts. Indecent acts are, are not properly defined in the legislation and they would very likely catch public acts of affection between people of the same gender. So while international attention is, is focused on the threat to tourist couples travelling to Indonesia, actually I think what's far more concerning is that threat this places or directs it 
LGBTQI people in Indonesia, Indonesian people who are not heterosexual. And what about sex workers? This effectively makes their work illegal and certainly opens them up to ongoing persecution from police. Yeah, it, absolutely it does. Um, but again, it requires a member of their family and specifically the, the sex worker's husband, wife, parent or child to report that to the police. I mean, I, I think it's perhaps less likely to be used against sex workers, although you can certainly see circumstances where that could happen. But you can see it more likely happening where members of a family object to their child or parents or spouse's sexuality and use this provision to punish them. This concession whereby it's got to be somebody close to make the report, that's kind of been presented in international media as a, a softening of the law. Isn't it really a kind of morality self-censorship where, you know, it's the families that are doing the enforcing? Yeah, I mean, it does. It, it, it gives authority to families to enforce their interpretation of sexuality and identity on members of their family. But it is true that it is a softening because it does protect people from persecution by the police. And there has been a lot of persecution of gay men in particular in Indonesia by the police at bathhouses and so forth. In Jakarta, there have been police raids where men have been arrested for what's called in Indonesia porno axi or pornographic actions. That is basically public displays of sexuality nudity, erotic behaviour. Uh, it's a very vague and undefined term, but police have used those provisions in the Anti-Pornography Act to persecute gay men in particular in, in the big cities, including Jakarta. So there has been a history of police using these vague and ill-defined terms to target gay men. A lot of this is actually extortion, which is very common uh, in criminal law enforcement in Indonesia, police using their powers to extort money from people in vulnerable positions. So at least these provisions prevent that from happening. You have to have a family member to trigger it. That's Tim Lindsay, Director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne with us on JOY 94.9. I think the thing that scares me most about this is that um, impetus on the family in that if your family is not approving of you, they've probably already rejected you, and this almost gives them an, a, an avenue to go after you. You could end up in jail because your family puts you there. Yeah, and we have many examples of stories. We have many stories of LGBTIQ people that are rejected by their family, and and especially, you know, we've covered a lot of that in, in, in some countries, and, and that's a real risk. So I think, yeah, that... Uh, the media focused on the risk to the, the lesbian, gay, LGBTIQ tourists. tourists, that's what mm. I was going to say, visiting tourists, but actually it's much deeper than that and, and it's unlikely to affect the tourists, but by proxy might affect the uh, Indonesian person that has an affair. The, the locals. Tourists. In, the in local, fact, coming yeah. up, we're going to delve into some of the hidden consequences uh, inside this new law for Indonesia's LGBT community. This is World Wide Wave. Out loud, proud, joy. Hi, this is Anastasia from the Sibalt organization Russia on the World Wide Wave. 
Got a message in there, Stefan? We have for 148. Um, this is just another example of religious intolerance in some countries. No, I would not visit Indonesia under the circumstances, nor would I support their economy. The same goes with flying some uh, Middle Eastern airline. I will always take the longer or more expensive route that fills the coffers of some of these airlines. And a counter-argument message from James from Pasco Vale. Uh, travel supports the locals. I would not boycott yeah, so interesting, interesting that very different views on uh, whether this changes people's intentions and, and how they feel about Indonesia. Tim Lindsay from the University of Melbourne Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society has joined us tonight to help unpack the hastily passed new criminal code of Indonesia. The new law includes a provision where the government will recognise any living law in the country. The broad terminology has been interpreted by several legal experts to allow the extension of the local Sharia laws for wider use across the country. It could mean it could mean curfews for female, mandatory hijab, dress codes and the targeting of so-called deviant sexuality or LGBT people. We asked him how he read this part of the law. Yeah, this is a highly problematic provision of the new code, which allows, quote, the law living in the community, unquote, to be applied to make an act a crime, even if it's not actually written in the code. And this is understood to mean traditional customary laws. And these vary widely from place to place across Indonesia. Indonesia has about 20 major ethnic groups, and these ethnic groups are uh, cultures of their own with their own first languages and so forth. And even those communities can be broken down and again, in some, some claim around 200 different groups. So there is a huge amount of cultural variation, linguistic variation, ethnic variation across Indonesia, one of the most diverse places in the world. And the customary behavior of those communities, very ancient in some cases, vary enormously, but they are often quite conservative, particularly on moral and sexual issues and reflect traditional values and in many cases islamic values so if law living in communities is recognized as a source of law that courts can enforce under this new code that creates huge uncertainty about what is permitted and what is not permitted changing from place to place culture to culture as you go across indonesia and this really has been criticised by law reformers and, and lawyers, legal scholars and so forth, for creating a whole new body of unpredictable and uncertain law, which many of them expect will be used to impose quite conservative moral values. This has happened in the past. There have been sexual and moral ideas coming from traditional community values that courts have occasionally enforced in the past. But this is a much a huge extension of these ideas. What this would do is effectively allow people to be charged with an offence that doesn't appear anywhere in the code wow. itself. So we'll wait and see whether this provision actually survives and is implemented and what form it will take, because I think it creates huge legal problems if it is ever implemented in its current form. Now, the LGBT community are not the only ones concerned with the revised criminal code. There's a number of threats to women's rights in the laws as well regarding um, not just cohabitation outside of marriage and sexual relations, but also to do with abortion. Can you tell us a bit about yeah. that? Yes, the code contains provisions that sense the dissemination of information about contraception, uh, even explaining how to obtain it. 
There are some exceptions for family planning, but the provision clearly limits women's freedom to choose. And it would be quite a significant change in Indonesia where information on contraception and condoms and so forth are very widely available. Uh, this is an attempt to reverse that. Indonesia has been well known for its success in promoting family planning in the past. And so contraception is quite a common thing in Indonesia, commonly used across the country. This this would make that a lot more difficult. It would be a quite significant change. Um, there are other provisions that impose a four-year sentence on a woman who has an abortion and even longer terms of jail for those who perform the abortions. There are some exceptions for rape victims and for medical emergencies, but this is still a, a real harshening of the law on abortion in Indonesia. Abortion's always been problematic because of Islamic religious attitudes towards it, but this um, firms up the situation. Those restrictions on the dissemination of information about contraception, would that also affect the ability to deliver HIV programs? It it might. Um it's hard to say at the moment. And this this brings up another wider issue about these laws, and that is that the law itself states that it will not come into force for three years, which is quite a long time. And in that time, implementing regulations are required to provide detail of the provisions of the code and how they're actually going to be implemented. What that means is that we really have to wait now for another three years to see what the government says in more detail about these regulations, the implementing regulations, what they will actually say to understand the real impact it's going to have. That three-year gap is um, a, a breather, I suppose, before the law comes into effect, but it also creates an opportunity for opponents of the law to start lobbying politicians and the government law enforcement agencies and so forth to modify the impact of the law, maybe even to alter some of the provisions before it comes into force. Tim, is that a usual process? Because that, that does seem like a long time and we've got a presidential election in Indonesia next year. You know, a cynic might say that that's kicking things down the road for the next leader. Very likely, yes. I think this code has to be understood in its political context. There have been debates in Indonesia about introducing a, a new criminal code for decades, going right back into the 1960s. Criminal law touches on almost every aspect of life, private and public. It controls morality. It controls the distribution of wealth, even in societies. And so it's been extremely difficult to reach a consensus on a new criminal code in a country as diverse as Indonesia. Every time there's been an attempt to pass a new code, it's resulted in opposition. And in fact, a few years ago, when they tried to pass this law, it resulted in the largest public demonstrations since the fall of Suharto in 1998. The question is, how has this been passed now and why was it passed so quickly? The most logical explanation is that it's really got a lot to do with the hugely important presidential and legislative elections that are scheduled for February next year. Um, president Jokowi's at the end of his second term. He can't run again. So there'll be a new president early next year. And the elections will result in a major recalibration of power and wealth across Indonesia that will last for five, maybe even 10 years. So really what this is about is about politicians ramming this law through at high speed so they can claim a sort of law and order success where others have failed for decades. And so they can assert the sort of conservative morality, so-called family values 
that they think will resonate with voters. And as to the impact, well, they don't need to worry about that. That's for the new parliament. It's three years off. The new president and the new government that comes in will have to deal with it. So I think this was a quick and easy pre-election fix for outgoing politicians who are facing a very major election early next year. Unfortunately, that means that we're probably going to be fighting through the consequences of this for ordinary people for years to come. Melbourne-based Director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society, Tim Lindsay from the University of Melbourne with us on Joy 94.9. The politics of this is uh, really is quite fascinating on two levels. First of all, there's this three-year implementation thing and then there just seems to be so much uncertainty in this law, so many things where they haven't crossed the T's and dotted the I's. And I'm, I'm wondering well, if that's deliberate. Uh, well, I think it's casting such a wide net that they probably haven't... I mean, it, they probably haven't had time to work out the logistics of it. But the intent is to, yeah, go really wide from what I'm understanding from but what I, um, Tim is saying. Well, I wonder if the politics of it allows politicians to talk in the election about how they're viewing the law... Because there's so much wiggle room in these laws, they can say, oh, we're, we're doing this, we're doing this. But then this implementation code, this implementation pathway, which takes, mm. which will take the three years to put together, is where they actually clarify what is there and isn't. So it gets them to after the election. That's Is it, am I being that? You're being, I mean, you're being cynical, but uh, yeah. so, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, it's probably justified. I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know what to say to that, but um, I think one of the worrying things around contraception and your your point on access to HIV medication, although they're scary. different things, uh, then they might be seen different by the the you know the, the regulation because they don't prevent. Uh, um, well, and as Tim was saying, they, they've already kind of got a. A cult like contraception is already uh, ingrained as a as an option as an opportunity. Yeah. This is a very regressive step, mm. and if you yeah. stop people talking about various types of contraception, then you know could that hit yeah, uh, no, HIV, and, yeah. and that's the last thing I think the region would want as well. Mm. Coming yes. up on Joy ninety four point nine, we're going to talk about religious influence in Indonesian politics. This is Worldwide Wave. Have your say. Access Joy any old way. Text 0427JOY949. Email onair at joy.org.au or call 1300JOY949. Your voice, your radio station. This is Georgi Tabagari from Tbilisi Pride on Worldwide Wave, Joy 94.9. You're on the show that takes you around the globe one queer story at a time, Worldwide Wave. Special hello to everybody listening to us on podcast. You can subscribe to receive our podcasts automatically either at joy.org.au forward slash worldwide wave or on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave us a review. And we are talking all things Indonesia and their new criminal code tonight. Messages are coming in. Yeah, we have um, 247, I think responding to the previous message from James from Pascavel. It's fair about supporting local, but I'd rather not be somewhere looking over my shoulder 24-7 in case I'm accused of anything against the law. Indonesia in one of the last places I would want to go through the legal system. And, you know, um, also as much as it's holding the local local hostage and a crude thing to acknowledge, but with slowing down of tourism, it can help the local 
called an international community to lobby the government to change. I wonder if that would be the case. I don't know. I think, um, yes, that's, uh, that's a difficult call, I think, mm. to Keep make. Keep your thoughts coming through on uh, if this changes your view on Indonesia, whether or not you travel or not, it might just change your view on what sort of uh, country it is becoming. The other thing I just wanted to quickly mention is the Mardi Gras viewing party uh, because this year it's World Pride in Sydney plus Mardi Gras. It's just going to be massive. Um, we know not everyone can get up there, but, hey, we bought a bit of Mardi Gras to Melbourne. Oh, so here at the Joy at at the uh, Victorian Pride Centre, where Joy is based, as uh, a joint fundraiser between Joy and the VPC. Uh, so you can watch the parade broadcast with a uh, fabulous gaggle of guests and presenters. Um, so it's Saturday the 25th of February here at the Pride Centre, uh, kicking off, doors open 4.30, kicking off from 5 o'clock, and the parade itself starts from 6. But you grab a ticket, get in early, because they will probably sell out. Go yes. to joy.org.au. And you would want to do that because... Melbourne dust parties better. <laughs> the world's longest running radio show dedicated to international LGBTIQ news and current affairs. This is World Wide Wave from Australia's Rainbow Radio Station, Joy 94.9. Despite the significant and wide-ranging laws changing included uh, that are included in Indonesia's new criminal code, it passed the parliament with an overwhelming majority, including support from virtually every political party. Unlike previous attempts to pass this code, it has not been met with mass protests. We asked Tim Lindsay from the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne what this tells us about the influence of religious conservatism on Indonesian politics today. There's no doubt that Indonesia has been shifting towards more conservative attitudes towards religion and Islam in particular over the last 20 years or so, um, and that there have been a degree of rising intolerance among Indonesia's mainstream Muslims. However, conservative Islamist groups are not a significant political player in Indonesia in the sense that they don't get elected into the national legislature. It's Islamist political parties have never been able to win a majority in Indonesia. In fact, their vote has been falling in recent years and they are a very small minority within the legislature and within politics. The Muslim parties that do get some support tend to be more mainstream, certainly not conservative hardliner groups. However, this is not really about the fact that Indonesia is becoming a, a more Sharia-oriented society. It's about politicians jostling for advantage in electoral contests. And we see religious parties that get very little support in Australia winning a degree of influence by sitting on crossbenches and having a deciding vote. We see family values being used by politicians as we come into elections. We see a Christian country, nominally speaking at least, where uh, most people don't vote for Christian groups. And the same is true in Indonesia in the sense that whilst conservative Islamist parties have very little electoral traction, these issues come into play at election time when politicians believe it will give them an edge over their competitors in some really expensive, tightly fought electoral campaigns. I think that's really what it's about. In other words, this is not really about the Islamizing of the political process in Indonesia. It's about getting an advantage in elections. And I think this law is passed now precisely because we've got a very important election next year. 
you mentioned last time they sort of tried to bring in these major changes, there were widespread protests. There really hasn't, doesn't seem to have been any local protests or, or reaction and a pretty muted international reaction as well. Why is that? Uh, it's it's difficult to explain, but I think it has a lot to do with the fact that this was rushed through at high speed, very little consultation with the public. And I think it caught civil society in Indonesia with the source of resistance to these laws by surprise. The last time they tried to do it in 2019, it did trigger huge protests. It happened at the same time that the legislature tried to pass a law that would undermine the a national anti-corruption commission. So the two things together, the gutting of the anti-corruption commission and the attempt to pass the code took place much more slowly. There was much more time to gather opposition um, and the public protests in the end stopped the code, although they didn't stop the gutting of the anti-corruption commission. This time it went through very quickly. It took civil society by surprise. They didn't have a chance to organise. And I think also many of them were intimidated by the extent to which the criminal code really targets opponents of the government flagging a sort of a far more harsh attitude towards criticism. So I I, I don't think we should take from the absence of major demonstrations the, the idea that this code is not controversial in Indonesia. It is very controversial in Indonesia. But I think civil society has not succeeded in marshalling wide public protest that doesn't mean they won't be working hard to try and unravel this code. This time, I think they're most likely to do it through the constitutional court because there are so many provisions in this new law that would seem to be contrary to the constitution, including, of course, the reinstatement of the provisions on insulting the president and members of government. So I think it's inevitable that this code will end up in front of the constitutional court, which does have the power to strike it out or to modify it and has been willing to do so in the past. Certainly something for us to watch over the coming three years. Tim Lindsay, the Director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne. Thanks so much for joining us on Worldwide Wave. A pleasure, Matt. Thank you. So much to unpack there from Tim and uh, great that we've got his in-depth knowledge on this because clearly the laws, this is a far from perfect law and open to a lot of interpretation uh, and it seems that the religious groups are certainly have a voice in influencing this, and mm. the and the um, local, uh, I guess, community organisations that he calls, which would include LGBT groups, women's groups, all those sorts of things, have not yet had their say. Well, do you think they're going to be allowed to have their say? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think Tim's sort of saying their chance is mm. this implementation so, process. Yeah. They've got three years; the clock's running. Um, but, you know, mm. a good 12 to 15 months of that is an election campaign where, you know, you can probably bet that there'll be lots of attacks on the LGBT community anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's a limited time frame for them to be able to actually influence yeah. this. They need to get organised. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, well, they were organised previously when they tried to pass the law before, so it is surprising that this time... And, and maybe they've got the structures and they've got the contacts and everything set up and they've just got to pick the right time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Um, clearly, uh, the more the more breadth you have in these laws, the more chance there is for appeal, so there's still options that, that could go to courts for appeal. Um, 
The other thing we talked with Tim about, uh, we had to uh, cut it down. We we're going to put up an extended interview with Tim on our podcast because he also talked about journalists and opposition parties and the, the, the risks they face under this law. So there is a real uh, freedom of speech um, tightening under this law. And also he did point out there is one plus, which is uh, a, a, a concession when somebody gets the death penalty that they've basically get like a a 10-year period to prove that they've, um, you know, improved themselves, reformed, Mm. uh, and then their sentence can be commuted from a death penalty. So this is something that internationally Mm. uh, there's been a lot of pressure on Indonesia because they have been, um, particularly under this last president, quite forthright in using the death penalty, particularly for drug charges. Mm. Uh, So this seems to be a bit of a concession in okay. that regard, you know, you can find one good <laughs> one thing. Silver linings. One thing. One <laughs> thing. <laughs> yes. So uh, stay tuned. We'll have that podcast up uh, in a couple of days' time and uh, you can hear the rest of that interview then. Listen live or on demand from wherever you are in the world. Stream us live on joy.org.au or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform to World Wide Wave. It's Roman Schlesinger from the Rainbow Pride Bratislava in Slovakia for Worldwide Wave. Receive LGBT news from around the world throughout the week. Like Worldwide Wave on Facebook now. A huge thank you to our guest tonight, Tim Lindsay, the Director at the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of New South Wales. You can find out more about them at law.unimelb.edu.au and we'll place an extended interview with Tim up on our website and podcast in the next few days. And thanks to everybody who sent us messages on Facebook. That was Liz, Yankfa, Richard and a whole heap more. And that's W3Joy on Facebook. And thanks for the SMS messages, uh, 247-148, James from Pascovale. And also, thank you from behind the scene, our podcaster, Peter, and our social media master, Dean. We'll be back next week with more Worldwide Wave. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Worldwide Wave, the show that takes you around the globe, one country at a time. Worldwide Wave is the international news and current affairs show on Australia's LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. You can listen live every Tuesday night on 94.9 FM in Melbourne and online at joy.org.au. You'll find all our podcasts at joy.org.au slash worldwidewave or follow us on Facebook for the latest international LGBT news. Search W3Joy on Facebook now. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.